Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first full day of our Udumbara end of summer sashimi. Marking the first transmission of the Dharma, the teachings from Shakyamuni Buddha to Maha Kasyapa. So far, it's been eventful. Thunderstorms, heat, a tree even fell down. What will happen tomorrow? <laughs> Dogen Zenji, our first ancestor in Japan, writes in the fascicle face-to-face -face transmission the following. Shakyamuni Buddha graciously entrusted and transmitted Dharma face-to-face -to, -face to Maha Kasyapa, saying, I have the treasury of the true Dharma eye. I entrust it to Maha Kasyapa. At the assembly on Mount Song, Bodhidharma said to Huike, who had later become the second ancestor, you have attained my marrow. From this we know that in trusting the treasury of the true Dharma eye and saying, you have attained my marrow, is this very face-to-face -face transmission. At the exact moment of jumping beyond your ordinary bones and marrow, there is the Buddha ancestor's transmission face-to-face. -face. The face-to-face -face transmission of great enlightenment. The face-to-face -face transmission of the mind seal is extraordinary. Transmission is never exhausted. There is never a lack of enlightenment. Now, the great way of Buddha ancestors is only giving and receiving face to face, receiving and giving face to face. There is nothing excessive and there is nothing lacking. Faithfully and joyously realize when your own face meets with someone who has received this transmission face to face. face-to-face, face-to-face. Transmission, transmission of the Dharma, of the teachings, of the true Dharma I, happens face-to-face. -face. What does this mean? It seems to me that it's a little bit different from what's happening in this moment. Here we are, sitting in a circle, facing one another, sharing the teachings, hearing the teachings, listening to the teachings. If I remember correctly a certain detail from the story about Shakyamuni and Mahakasyapa, they were not alone during this face-to-face -face transmission. There was a great assembly present. It seems like there's always an assembly present. Buddha goes to the bathroom, there's an assembly present. Buddha takes a nap, there's an assembly present. Yet only Mahakasyapa smiled when Shakyamuni lifted and looked at the flower. 
only Mahakasyapa, to use Bodhidharma's phrase, attain the Buddha's marrow. So something special happened. And I hesitate to use the word special, but I can't think of a better one at this moment. Something that is both the same and yet different from what's happening right now. The Japanese word used by Dogen, translated here as face-to-face, transmission, is menju. As you may imagine, it admits of a variety of meetings, and our root teacher, Kobanchino Roshi, described menju as acceptance of the self through acceptance of another. So we could say that what happened is that Mahakasyapa came to accept himself through accepting Shakyamuni Buddha. And Huike came to accept himself through accepting Bodhidharma. And just in the same way we could say Shakyamuni Buddha accepted himself through accepting Mahakasyapa, and Bodhidharma accepted himself through accepting Huike, and all of them accepted themselves through accepting themselves, and also that no one accepted themselves, and there was no accepting happening. It seems to me that all of these are the case. But how did this happen? This accepting of the self through accepting another. One response begins with Dogen's teaching on the four visible stages in the development of a religious life. First, there's way-seeking mind, or bodhicitta in Sanskrit. We've talked about this some before. Second, there's ongoing practice. Third, there's constant awakening. And fourth, there is perfect, utmost peace. Simply put, teaching, practice, faith, and confirmation Progression through these four stages in one's life, each stage describing how it is that the person in question orients themselves towards the world, is what allows for menju, this face-to-face transmission. For someone who has inhabited or embodied this orientation is, Coben says, ready to be met with, to be found, by anything or anybody, by itself, or by all. And I thought today that I would focus on the first of these stages, the arising of bodhicitta, or way-seeking mind. So it was the fall of 2009 that I first became interested in meditation and in Buddhism and in Zen. Uh, And I won't say that this is when way-seeking mind first arose for me, but I will say that this is when I started to notice something that you might describe as way-seeking mind. So what was happening for me at that time? So I just relocated to a new city. I'd been living in Phoenix, Arizona for four years, and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia by myself again. 
it's a frequent pattern in my life, moving and having to start over from place to place. So there was loneliness. And I relocated from a place that I felt I could call home. It was the only place in my life, at that time anyways, that I felt that I could call home. Four years during my undergraduate studies in Phoenix. For nowhere before then was that word fitting. So there was separation from a place that I felt comfortable and I felt that I belonged. I left behind what I consider the first group of people that it was appropriate to call friends. It's hard to have meaningful relationships with people when you're hopping around all the time. So it's in part because we spent a considerable amount of time together, four years, the longest I'd been anywhere at that time in my life. And also that time had the first tastes of freedom and vulnerability. So there was sadness and frustration present. I was starting over again and I felt not whole again. And I'll add disappointment and dissatisfaction to this list. The list is, and I'll just leave it with this many items, loneliness, separation, sadness, frustration, disappointment, and dissatisfaction. And there's moments of happiness and smiles and stuff too, but I'm talking about the overarching mood. So now I want to read something from Coben. One realization leading towards Waymind is a feeling about change, rapid change bringing a realization of the transient nature of all things, which drives you to practice. You want to find some kind of subtle, unchanging self. This realization of transiency may come with the experience of your direct family members passing away, friends suddenly going without saying goodbye to you. You never see them again. So you think that someday, any day, it could happen to you. Perhaps before they left, you thought you had some clarity about yourself and the world. Maybe before you lost them, you had experienced a certain perfection in your life. But with this awareness of the transiency of life, you are driven to seek for what is called enlightenment. You want to recover that feeling of perfection. I read this after I had worked through what that period of my life was like in the fall of 2009. And I felt that what I said and what Coben says here arrive at the same place possibly from different angles, though. Where we both arrived was an opening that was present for the awareness of way-seeking mind. 
Coben's hand, I find, gestures towards the truth of transiency, or the truth of impermanence. What I shared seemed to gesture towards the truth of suffering, or of dissatisfaction. The one leads to the other, and the other is a consequence of the one. I could say more about this connection between impermanence and suffering, but I'm not interested in doing that here. It's enough for me to say that things change, and because things change, we suffer. And because we suffer, there's an opportunity for something to arise in us, what we call bodhicitta, or way-seeking mind. The drive to seek enlightenment that is like a fire that once lit you cannot stop, we've heard Coven say before. I found myself fixating on that word fire for a little while, and I thought that was an interesting choice. Why fire? Why not water, wind, or earth, or something outside of the elemental framework? When you call fire to mind, what characteristics come with it for you? Is it the element of destruction or transformation? Is it powerful? Is it intense? Is it unwieldy? And how does Coben's addition of a fire that you cannot stop change at all what might arise for you? I found as I sat with it, that phrase, something that you cannot stop, stood out to me more than the thing to which it was attached. Fire, water, Wilbur, for that matter. Way-seeking mind cannot be stopped, but not because it's supremely strong, strong in the way in which Superman is traditionally described. I don't think it's faster than a speeding bullet, and I don't think it's more powerful than a locomotive, and I don't think it can leap tall buildings in a single bound. But way-seeking mind cannot be stopped because it's almost stubborn, it seems to me. It's inextinguishable. I spent several years of my life, as most of you know, quite literally drowning myself with alcohol, and yet that fire endured. Endured enough to continue to drive me forward and to not give up. And there came a point not too long ago when I asked Roshi and Doku-san, when my life literally fell apart, why I didn't simply continue down that path of self-destruction. So this is a very long way of saying that I have a sense of why it is that I'm here, but I wonder why you are here. Why are you here? What brought you here, both this weekend and generally? And when did you first notice that flame within you, bodhicitta, way-seeking mind? There's something else that Coben says about way-seeking mind that I want to share with you today. He says this way mind includes an almost painful recognition of independence. 
not necessarily aloneness, rather. It is being born alone and passing on all alone, that kind of realization. You do depend on others. Others depend on you. You know that. But it is in essential independence and essential caring, coming from an independent person towards another independent person. I wonder if you have this feeling, this recognition, this sense that although, yes, we're all interconnected and I am the entire universe as it manifests itself in this particular spot, that at the same time, I am alone. I am independent. For a little while now, say, the last two, maybe three months. I've been talking about the fact that your practice life is essentially up to you. No one else can sit zazen for you, I've said. Bow for you, chant for you, attend to what is right here for you. Only you can do these things. Mary Oliver writes in the poem Messenger, My work is loving the world, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes and a mouth with which to give shouts of joy. Oliver's work can be your work too, but it's up to you to orient yourself towards the world in this way. No one else can do that for you. Maybe this is the painful recognition that Coben has in mind. I'm here, and I'm suffering, and it's up to me to address that. Sometimes we say in Zen, and Roshi reminded us of it a while ago, that you really can't teach anyone anything. When I hear this, it makes me wonder why are there teachers? And it makes me wonder why some of us work awfully hard to become teachers, if you really can't teach anyone anything. The saying's been on my mind lately because I've had repeated meetings with the brute fact that everyone is essentially an independent person. I, and I suspect you too, but I'm just speaking for myself at the moment, really have no control over what it is that anyone else says or does, or doesn't say, or doesn't do. So I've been wondering what the point of having expectations is. If there really is a place for hope or something hope adjacent in our practice life. Maybe that is why this essential independence when recognized is painful or almost painful. 
It invites swinging to the end of a spectrum where you would find despair. All that can be offered, it seems to me, are opportunities. I hate these cute little sayings that seem to be so accurate that you can lead a horse to water and you can't make it drink, right? But that's exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Hate is too strong, I apologize. Strong aversion is more Buddhist to say. We can create a space in which learning can happen. We can notice openings where a shifting of someone's perspective by just one or two degrees can take place, perhaps. And that's about it. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus opens his handbook by stating simply that some things are up to us and some things are not up to us. It turns out that a great deal depends on how well we understand that simple statement. The whole of happiness and freedom, he says. Yet Coben stressed not just an essential independence that can be frustrating, infuriating, can swing one towards despair, but also an essential caring, coming from an independent person toward another independent person. So there's not just independence, but there's caring, essentially. We all suffer, not just in the sense that we are born into this world alone and we will leave this world alone, but also in all those ways I listed earlier. If you forgot, here they are again. Loneliness, separation, sadness, frustration, disappointment, and dissatisfaction. There's a sense in which these feelings are private to me, are mine exclusively, and no one else can experience them. At the same time, however, there's a sense in which they are shared and known by all independent persons, past and present and future. So if you like, you can imagine your emotional experiences like a picture indexed to a particular time, place, contained within or experienced by a particular skin bag, which has been conditioned up to that point in a particular way. Importantly, these pictures, these emotional experiences, have borders, places where they stop, or boundaries, if you prefer, which others cannot cross, and if held firm, prevent even you from crossing in the other direction. Yet our heart-mind is a rather special thing. It can, all on its own, start to soften some of those boundaries, or borders of these pictures, these emotional experiences. As the boundaries become softer and softer, it seems to me, it becomes easier and easier for us to slip beyond them. 
we can begin to see how our private experiences are at the same time universal. And we then see that all of these other independent persons too are suffering. They're lonely. They're sad. They're frustrated. They're disappointed. And they're dissatisfied in just the way that we are. And then, moved by that essential caring that Coben talks about, that caring that's part of our very nature, we can extend our hands and we can ask them, how can I help? Perhaps then this is why menju, face-to-face transmission, is possible only when there is an arising and awareness of bodhicitta, of way-seeking mind. The drive for enlightenment, that stubborn little flame, works tirelessly to soften the borders or the boundaries or the edges of our life. When softened, we can pass beyond them, When we pass beyond them, we understand that others, those independent persons, sometimes those pesky independent persons, are just as we are. And when we understand this, we simultaneously accept them too. And all of this is a very long way of saying that through accepting them, we accept ourselves just as we are. Thank you.